I want to go to this clip here from How's everybody doing? We're listening to Michael in the hotel. News legal analyst. We appreciate York federal and state prosecutor telling us his former New York federal and state prosecutor Tally Ferretti and Weinstein. She's also an NBC News legal analyst. We appreciate you being with us. Uh, first, if you, if you can address the whole issue of, of self-defense, is that often successful or as it was in this case? It is not often successful the way it was in this case, but Lester, it's important to note that Wisconsin self-defense law is pretty much standard in putting the burden on the prosecution to disprove self-defense, and that's the theory that the jury clearly bought here. The the prosecution was criti- the prosecution was criticized at times by many onlookers for the way it conducted the case. Uh, do you, when we look at this case, are we going to look at the performance of the prosecution, or just did the facts simply not make a case uh, that argued against what Rittenhouse was saying? No, I think when we sit with this verdict, what we are going to look at is the really dangerous combination of liberal self-defense laws, like the ones in Wisconsin around the country, and the accessibility of guns, because in the end, his argument which prevailed was that his own gun kyle rittenhouse's own gun is what put him in danger and what justified him using deadly force if he had not had that gun in his hand then he would not have been in a position to invoke the self-defense theory and i think we're going to be sitting with that toxic combination of self-defense and the proliferation of guns for a really long time the prosecution had made the argument in their closing argument had made the argument in their closing arguments that you can't provoke something and then claim it was self-defense. Maybe you can. Is that, is that what this says? It says that, uh, at least in this case, the jury read provocation really narrowly. Uh, so they did not accept the theory that him just being there with a dangerous weapon was provocative. And I think when they broke it down with each of the three victims, they stepped into his shoes and they agreed with Rittenhouse that he was in danger and that he was justified in taking the violent actions that he did. And, and how do you think uh, the, 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 the social impact of this will be? It's probably hard to read, uh, but a lot of folks will take what they want out of this, uh, out of this verdict. That's right. It was polarizing going in, and it's going to be polarizing going out. You know, we just heard in your report about uh, Second Amendment activists already being on the ground there uh, in Wisconsin. And I think hanging over this is also a Supreme Court case that's currently pending about whether states can be as restrictive as some of them are, as New York is, in prohibiting people from having concealed handguns. And, uh, you know, this this verdict and this whole episode is a lesson uh, that may well bear on decisions like that coming down. Tally, I'll ask you to stand by for a second and just to remind folks who may be joining us uh, not guilty on all, joining us uh, not guilty on all counts for uh, Kyle Rittenhouse in uh, the killing of two people and wounding another during a protest last year in Kenosha, Wisconsin. 
as we continue our coverage of that. Joining us now is uh, Georgetown School of Law professor and NBC News legal analyst, Paul Butler. Paul, great to see you. Uh, your early observations and thoughts of this verdict. The not guilty verdict means that the jurors believed Mr. Rittenhouse's use of force was justified. They found that he reasonably believed that each of the three people he shot posed a deadly threat. It also means that the jurors found that Mr. Rittenhouse was not the aggressor. He didn't provoke any of this, and in the eyes of the law, is now a victim. Lester, I think Mr. Rittenhouse probably won this case by taking the stand. He had a constitutional right not to testify, but when the defense is self-defense, jurors want to hear a story. Mr. Rittenhouse's narrative was that the first person he killed followed him and tried to grab his gun. The second attacked him with a skateboard. And the third person he shot pointed a gun at him. The jury looked at the video, the testimony, and apparently it found reasonable doubt. That's the standard for a not guilty verdict. The prosecution lost on some points that it thinks it wanted to do, things it wanted to say. Do you think any of those really came into play ultimately? You know, there were concerns throughout the trial that the judge took the skills in front, took the scales in front in favor of Mr. Rittenhouse by excluding some evidence that the prosecutors thought was really probative. They had a video of Mr. Rittenhouse beating up a teenage girl, another video of him looking at people he thought were stealing from a CVS drugstore and saying, man, I wish I had my gun. That might have made a difference to a jury, but the judge thought that it was inadmissible. Based on the verdict, concerns about the judge and the prosecution will go away when a defendant is found not guilty, the verdict is final prosecution cannot appeal so those concerns will go away in a legal form i think that there are some people who will not have confidence in this verdict lester based on those concerns about the prosecution and the judge there was video of these confrontations but also ultimately is the jury not simply asked to go inside the mind of the individual what they thought what they perceived as as a threat so the jury has to do two things one it has to find that Mr. Rittenhouse himself actually believed that he faced a deadly threat from each of the three people who he assailed. And second, that that belief was reasonable, that another reasonable person would have had the same concern. And so in accepting Mr. Rittenhouse's self-defense, the jury was either persuaded by him, or maybe they thought the evidence probably favored the prosecution, probably is not good enough if, if it's a criminal case. The standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt means that the jury has to be around 95% certain. Okay, so that was from um, that was from that was uh, Georgetown Law Professor Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, and uh, so that was from NBC News. You heard uh, Lester Holt. Name of that clip: How did lawyers for Kyle Rittenhouse effectively argue for self-defense? That was uh, Caridian Weinstein, uh, Tali Caridian Weinstein, uh, NBC legal 
analyst and Georgetown Law Professor Paul Butler. That's from November 19, uh, 2021. And we'll post this link here. You can watch that entire segment. Okay, and read the uh, article here from NBC News. I'm talking about from New York Times. Times, when it comes to self-defense, the prosecution has a heavier burden. They go through and they talk about uh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin's rules for self-defense are well within the national mainstream. If people reasonably believe they are at risk of death or great bodily harm, they can use deadly force. Uh, most states say that someone who provokes most states say someone who provokes violence or is acting illegally waives the right to self-defense, but Wisconsin allows it if the person has, quote, exhausted every other reasonable means to escape from or otherwise avoid death or great bodily harm. Wisconsin allows self-defense if the person has, quote, exhausted every other reasonable means to escape from or otherwise avoid death or great bodily harm, end quote. The state of Wisconsin does not have a full-fledged, does not have a full-fledged stand-your-ground uh, statute that exists in at least 30 states, but people who believe they are threatened do not have a duty to retreat if they can in the state of Wisconsin. They don't have a duty to retreat if they can. Now, self-defense laws typically do not require someone to have good judgment and tend to consider only the moments leading up to the violence, not whether they were the person willingly, not whether the person willingly willingly entered a turbulent situation or contributed to the chaos. Okay, this is page two. Self-defense laws typically do not require someone to have good judgment and tend to consider only the moments leading up to the violence, not whether the person willingly entered a turbulent situation or contributed to the chaos. Uh, Samuel Buell, a former federal prosecutor who teaches at Duke University School of Law, speaking about Kyle Rittenhouse, said, do you look at the choice to go to a heated confrontational area with a weapon that would be scary to a lot of people. Do you look at look at the choice to go to a heated confrontational area with a weapon that would be scary to a lot of people? Quote, you can't really say that the you can't really say that he doesn't have a right to do that because of the status of gun laws. 
can't really say that that he does not have a right to do that because of the status of gun laws, end quote. Similarly, even though the three men on trial for the killing of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia chased him through a suburban neighborhood, they are claiming self-defense because they say Ahmaud Arbery tried to get control of a shotgun one was carrying. But that's a different case. It's a different case because they pursued Ahmaud Arbery. They were the aggressors. He's running away from them. And he tried to grab the gun in self-defense. He was unarmed. That's a, that's a, that's a different case. Gun laws have generally become more permissive. Open carry is now legal to one degree or another in almost every state. Uh, let's see. Okay. The reasonable, we drop down here, page two, uh, a little more than halfway down. The reasonable fear standard for self-defense has given rise to concerns that it is affected by the same racial bias that permeates the uh, justice system. The reasonable fear standard for self-defense has given rise to concerns that it rise to concerns that it is affected by the same racial bias that permeates the justice system. A mountain of social science research shows that African Americans, African American men in particular, are more likely to be seen as threatened. The message that this case sends is to shoot first and ask questions later, said uh, Tammy Chavis, Chavis, the director of the criminal justice program at Wake Forest Law. She added, if we change the race, the age, the victims, if we change some of the dynamics, we very well could have a different result. All right, now, page, page three. During the unrest, Kyle Rittenhouse was pursued by a man, Joseph Rosenbaum, who Rittenhouse said he feared would wrest control of his gun. Rittenhouse shot and killed him. That, according to evidence presented at the trial, caused members of the crowd to perceive Kyle Rittenhouse as a dangerous aggressor, okay, one witness called him an active shooter, or thought he was an active shooter. One man, Anthony Hover, used a skateboard as a weapon against Kyle Rittenhouse. This is after Kyle Rittenhouse shot Joseph Rosenbaum. Rittenhouse shot and killed uh, Anthony Hover before facing off with a third man, Gage Grosskreek who had pulled out a handgun, because there were a lot of people there that night who were legally carrying guns. Kyle Rittenhouse wounded him in the arm. Grosskreek testified. Even assuming that everyone involved had the best intentions, it would be difficult to tell aggressors from defendants. Even assuming that everyone involved had the best intentions, it would be difficult to uh, tell aggressors from defendants. A police officer testified that so many armed people were roaming the area that when Kyle Rittenhouse approached with his hands up, he made no connection to the shootings that had that had occurred. Because when you 
research this case, it's like a lot of people out there that night had guns. jury was not asked to consider whether Kyle Rittenhouse was in error for bringing a gun to a volatile situation. The jury was not asked to consider whether Kyle Rittenhouse was in error for bringing, bringing a gun to a volatile situation. The only gun charge against Rittenhouse, possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18, was dismissed at the 11th hour judge agreed with the defense argument that the law made exception for long guns, long guns, a common provision that allows teenagers to hunt. The law was written at a time when military-style assault rifles were not widely available. So the Wisconsin law, so this is why you have to look at gun laws in that particular state. Now, Associated Press has a really good article that breaks down this whole, uh, the whole Wisconsin gun law and why the judge threw it out, Judge Schroeder threw it out. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a, um, it, it makes an exception because of the length of the barrel of the gun. And the length of the barrel of his gun exceeded, I think it was 16 inches. So someone 16 or older could have a gun if if the barrel exceeded a certain number of inches. It was a, it was a long gun. Uh, the name of that article, Explainer, Why Did Judge Drop Rittenhouse Gun Charges? Associated Press. So this goes in deep and analyzes the Wisconsin gun law and shows the mistake that the prosecution made in interpreting the Wisconsin gun law, which is why the judge, uh, the judge threw it out. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's pull this up quickly here. Okay, this is uh, uh, the piece from Yahoo News that they picked up from the Associated Press. So you can read this and just Google this title from the Associated Press explaining why did judge drop Rittenhouse gun charges. And it goes through and explains one, two, three, four. Um, first page. Scroll down. Assistant District Attorney James Krause argues that the exception renders the state's prohibition on minors. Assistant District Attorney James Krause Assistant District Attorney James Krause argued that the exception renders the state's prohibition on minors, minors possessing dangerous weapons meaningless. But when he acknowledged that Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's rifle barrel was longer than 16 inches, the minimum barrel length allowed under Wisconsin state law, 
Judge Schroeder dismissed the charge because you have to look at the way the gun law was written, and it was um, okay. Hold on, we got the current. We got the actual wording of the law. The Kenosha-based defense attorney Michael Pacini. statute clearly requires to two Kenosha-based defense attorney Michael Pacini, the statute clearly requires a weapon to be short-barreled to apply, and the judge made the right call. Uh, okay, the current wording of the overarching law seems clear. Any person under 18 years of age who possesses or goes armed with a dangerous weapon is guilty of a class A misdemeanor, end quote. A lead-in paragraph defines dangerous weapon as several things, including any firearm loaded or unloaded. The subsection, page two, the subsection that defense attorneys relied upon to seek dismissal of the gun charge reads, quote, this section applies only to a person under age 18 years of age who possesses or is armed with a rifle or shotgun if the person is in violation of section 941.28. That section of law is not specific to minors but rather forbids any person from having a short barrel shotgun or rifle. It's not specific to minors, but it forbids any person from having a short barrel shotgun or rifle. Quote, we knew from the beginning that if he read the statute correctly, he was legal in having that firearm, that firearm, Richard said Friday after Rittenhouse was cleared on the remaining charges. The, evol the evolution of the law on, on children and guns is murky. Prior to 1987, Wisconsin banned children from possessing pistols. Prior to 1987, Wisconsin banned children from possessing pistols. Then, Governor Tommy Thompson, a Republican, signed a law that year that expanded the prohibition to include short barrel rifles, short, short, barrel, short barrel firearms, electric weapons, brass knuckles, throwing stars, and nunchucks. Four years later, Republican Governor Tommy Thompson signed another law extending the prohibition to any firearm any firearm, but that law also allowed minors to possess long guns for hunting as long as the barrels were at least a foot long, at least 12 inches long, okay? So this was the key part, so this was the key part of the Wisconsin state law that then caused the judge to throw out the gun charge. The, the, the AR-15 style assault rifle that Kyle Rittenhouse had, the, the gun barrel was 16 inches long. 
which allows someone to say to Wisconsin 16 or 17 to possess that gun. The prosecution misread, misread the Wisconsin gun law. Four years later, Governor Tommy Thompson signed another law extending the prohibition to any firearm. But that law also allowed minors to possess long guns for hunting as long as the barrels were at least a foot long, at least 12 inches long. Kyle Rittenhouse's barrel on his gun was 16 inches long. Legislative records show the statutory language went through multiple revisions until at least 2011. The wording is hardly straightforward. Judge Schroeder himself said he was confused about it when uh, Defense Attorney Richards, when uh, uh, Attorney Richards first asked him to toss the possession charge out earlier this year. So a lot of legal analysis have, have been saying that Wisconsin has to have more clearly defined gun laws because the gun laws in Wisconsin, Wisconsin are convoluted. They're very complicated to understand. Okay, read the rest of this shit because we're out of time. All right. Read the rest of this shit. Explain why did Judge drop Rittenhouse gun charge? November 15, 2021, Associated Press, Yahoo News picked up the story. Okay. So this type of information, you're not going to get a whole lot of other places just because they're not facts and evidence as much as possible here. A lot of this, a lot of this sensationalism and stuff we don't deal with. Um, okay, so while we were on the air, uh, this new story broke. Malcolm X's daughter, Malika Shabazz, found dead in her uh, Brooklyn home. Police, uh, police officials say Developing news story. We don't have a lot on this. Uh, now this is from NBC News Channel 4 in New York. We already shared the story from. Um, we already shared the story from uh, ABC uh, from ABC News. She was 56 years old and found dead in her apartment by her daughter. Found dead in her apartment by her daughter. Malcolm X's daughter, Malika Shabazz, found dead in her Brooklyn home, police officials. Uh, the city, the city's medical examiner responded to the scene and said the incident was not deemed suspicious. Uh, a cause of death has yet to be determined. She was 56 years old.
So, uh, Malika Shabazz, the daughter of civil rights, human rights activist Malcolm X, was found dead inside her Brooklyn home uh, Monday evening, November 22nd, according to two senior police officials. The 56-year-old Shabazz was found unconscious and unresponsive inside her home uh, on East 28th Street in Midwood just before 4.30 p.m. The police officials told NBC New York she was later pronounced dead. The city's medical examiner responded to the scene and said the incident was not deemed suspicious and cause of death has yet to be determined. Okay, so we'll talk more about this on uh, tomorrow's show, more sad news uh, for the family. And we know this is on the heels of two men, and we talked about this on Sunday's show, uh, two men, Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam, who were convicted back in 1966, wrongfully convicted of uh, the assassination of Malcolm X. They were cleared in a courtroom. They were exonerated in a courtroom uh, Thursday, November 18th, 2021. The case was reopened. Uh, because of the documentary Who Killed Malcolm X that came out in February 2021 and Cyrus R. Vance Jr.'s uh, uh, district attorney office, district attorney there in Manhattan, reopened the case and found a, uh, him reopening the case really exposed a cover-up by the FBI and the New York City Police Department to withhold evidence that would have exonerated these two. We talked about that on uh, extensively on yesterday's show, on Sunday's show. Uh, and New York Times has good uh, information on that. Good updates. Actually, I printed up the updates from the New York Times. Came out to be 44 pages. So, this is the initial article here. Two men convicted of killing Malcolm X will be exonerated after decades. And this was the day before, this was November 17th. And they've updated it uh, November 21st. And then they have. Uh, Highlights from from the push to exonerate two men in Malcolm X's killing. November 18, 2021. Okay. So check that out also. All right. Hey, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. And also through PayPal. PayPal.me forward slash the AHN show. Uh, we're here six days a week. This does us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting. We also have the information at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, African American business owners, post the name of your business here on the grid of your broadcast. Email us at AHN show at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We'll let you know how you can advertise with us. 
is our official Cash App account, dollar sign, the AP Chin Show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AP Chin Show through Cash App. When you go to it, it uh, show, it says Michael and shows my picture there. These other ones here are fake African History Network Cash App accounts. And be sure to uh, register for the online classes I teach on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, it's 10-week online courses from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Uh, we do that on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then also, uh, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, when they get teaching in school, we teach that on Sunday, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch them any time. You still have access to the full class, even after the 10-week online course is over with. So the classes are on sale right now, $50 for uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, and $60 for Understanding Transatlantic Slave Trade when they get teaching in school. They're on sale for a limited time. Okay. Uh, and then also uh, we have the, uh, the Kwanzaa Shop.com uh, and our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Get your uh, Kwanzaa supplies there. Uh, your canaras, uh, your candles, your mats, right here on the homepage of our website, the Kwanzaa Shop. Just click right here for the KwanzaaShop.com, and that's from Sister Nubia Watford. And she has a promotion. Get $10 off your orders placed before November 28th. Okay, visit the KwanzaaShop.com. All right, we have to get out of here. Remember, right now, it's correct, strong behavior. It's not over until we win. We're kind of forever. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Kwanzaa is coming. Kwanzaa is coming, and the KwanzaaShop.com has all of your Kwanzaa needs. Order your Kwanzaa set today, which includes, um, once again, the day was a very, very busy uh, news day. You have the uh, deliberations continuing with the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse murder trial. You have that going on. Uh, you have Travis McMichael, who took the witness stand. why he shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery, and he shed some tears on on, on, uh, on the witness stand also, so I'm not sure if he um, was paying attention to what happened with Kyle Rittenhouse or what have you, but that, that took place today. Um, and I think, I think Jamal, the, um, I think Jamal, the cross-examination is going to continue, so prosecutors to really grill him in his testimony. But uh, this morning, we got the news that um, in the case of the assassination of Malcolm X, um, two men who were convicted in the assassination of Malcolm X are going to uh, be released from prison and they have been exonerated. Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam have uh, uh, were in prison for years. Have been in prison for years. Uh, two of the men found guilty of the assassination of Malcolm X are expected to have their convictions thrown out on Thursday, November 17th. The Manhattan District Attorney and lawyers for the two men said rewriting the 
official history of one of the most notorious murders uh, or assassinations of the civil rights era. We're going to talk about this, and, and um, this was because of the um, documentary uh, Who Killed Malcolm X that aired on Netflix, came out in 2020, Who Killed Malcolm X. And we talked about that documentary here on the show, okay? I saw it and watched it a few times. Talked about it here. Because of the documentary, um, the prosecutor's office there, Cy Vance's office in um, New York area, launched an investigation, okay, to look at uh, the claims and um, reopen the, the, the case, the assassination of Malcolm X. Uh, so this is a very, very interesting uh, turn of events. Okay, so we'll, we'll discuss this also, and then we'll deal with um, day nine in the uh, McMichael uh, Bryan murder trial. All right, now on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's spreads growth behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, what you allow other people to do to you, get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you control the circumference of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now we'll deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We'll deal with current events, history, and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. To sign up for our email newsletter, text the word KEMP, K-E-M-P-T, to 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word KEMP, K-E-M-P-T, to 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And uh, also at our website, we have information on the online courses that I teach on Saturdays and Sundays. Okay. Uh, we'll give you more information. We're going to go to clip number one. This is, uh, so, uh, and here's one of the articles we'll talk about here. Uh, New York Times has a huge article about this today. We're going to go to clip number one from uh, CBS uh, New York here in just a second. Uh, two men convicted of killing Malcolm X will be exonerated after decades. 1966 convictions of the two men are expected to be thrown out after a lengthy investigation validated long-held doubts about who killed the civil rights leader, who killed Malcolm X. Okay, so two men uh, who are being exonerated, Muhammad Aziz and uh, Khalil Islam. Okay, uh, let's go to clip number one, Shakira. So we have clip one from uh, a CBS affiliate uh, while we wait on the clip. Just press play when it's ready. Uh, for decades, historians have cast doubt on the case against the two men, Muhammad A. Aziz and Khalil Islam, who each think... Okay, let's go. Press play. Let's go. ...ask a judge to throw out those convictions tomorrow. We have to take Brennan, Hooper, and Studio with the latest. 
Washington, where it says this is an extraordinary development. It's believed the FBI and NYPD withheld key evidence in this case that would have likely led to an acquittal, acquittal against two men who served 20 years in prison. That evidence apparently pointed to other possible killers. With Malcolm X died in a hail of gunfire in the Autobot Ballroom in 1965, the alleged gunman rounded up. But now, more than five decades later, it's clear it was a rush to justice. And Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam, who always claimed they were not guilty, will have their convictions vacated. A two-year investigation by the Manhattan DA came after a Netflix series called Who Killed Malcolm X? And it helped lead to the exoneration of the two men. Two reported in the Autobahn Ballroom that day. Abdurrahman Mohammed's years-long investigation of the murder was the center of the Netflix documentary. He told me the investigation was a sham from day one. They cleared the ballroom, and they had a scheduled dance that evening. So there was actually a party that took place uh, in the very ballroom where Matt Malcolm was assassinated just a few hours earlier. Why do you think that happened so quickly? You can see very clearly that there was no real desire to solve this murder. Even the rostrum, with the bullet holes in it, was just flung into the basement where it remained for another 20 years or so.
Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV, the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30 plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network, subscribe now. Welcome back to the African History Network show. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Wednesday, November 17, 2021, and we are live. Calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. Okay, uh, so right before the break, we're going to go back to that clip about the DNW. Right before the break, um, we were dealing with the news that came out this morning that um, the two men who were convicted in the assassination of Malcolm X um, are being, they will be exonerated. New evidence has surfaced. Now, this was because of the documentary that came out in 2020 called Who Killed Malcolm X? Who Killed Malcolm X? Now, we've talked about that documentary here on this show. I saw it two or three times, and um, there was a there was an article. I did a lot of research on, uh, on the documentary, and there was an article that came out at the time that talked about the documentary and um, it, 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 some people had some issues with the documentary. Let's, I want to go back to this clip here, and then we'll continue to this after the break. Let's go back to the clip from CBS, uh, CBS uh, New York News. State Senator James Sanders says the full story still hasn't been told. Uh, not just the, the, the idiots pulling the trigger, but who were the main conspirators? Who were the ones who sat and organized all of these things? Mm -hmm. still be a lot of yes. Now, he's in a statement said that he hopes the same system that was responsible for the travesty of justice also takes responsibility for what he calls the immeasurable harm it caused him. Official news conference announcing the exonerations comes tomorrow from the Manhattan DA. Christine. All right, Nick, thank you. Okay, so that's from uh, CBS New York, CBS uh, New York affiliate. That's from uh, today, November 17th, 2021. All right, and that deals with um, the uh, exoneration. Uh, name of that clip is uh, Two Men Convicted in Assassination of Malcolm X Will Be Exonerated. It's New York. .cbslocal.com, New York. .cbslocal.com. So, this is a this is an article that we talked about here on the show back February 26, 2020. Back right around that time when it came out. Name of this uh, name of this article. This is from the New York Times. Name of this article is "Who Really Killed Malcolm X?" Five years later, the case may be reopened. 
who really killed Malcolm X? Five years later, the case may be still open. Uh, it was February the 6th, 2020. And it talks about for more than half a century, scholars have maintained that prosecutors convicted the wrong men in the assassination of Malcolm X. For more than half a century, scholars have maintained that prosecutors have convicted wrong men in the, in the uh, assassination of Malcolm X. Now, 55 years after the bloody afternoon of February 1965, February 21st, 1965, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is reviewing whether to reinvestigate the murder reviewing whether to reinvestigate the murder. Some new evidence comes from a six-part documentary called Who Killed Malcolm X? Now, those that have been watching this show for some time, now I've been on the air 11 years, okay? Um, those who have been watching the show here since I've been on 19 AM Super Station WFDF for five years, and we were broadcasting here on Facebook, you know, when this, you know, last year we dealt with all of this, here and said that the case was going to be reopened. Malcolm's assassination was going to be reopened. Some new evidence comes from a six-part documentary called Who Killed Malcolm X? Streaming on Netflix February 7, 2020. Streaming on Netflix February 7, 2020. This documentary posits that two of the men convicted could not have been at the scene uh, the day of uh, that day, okay? The documentary uh, is based upon the evidence that was presented. It followed the theory that two of the men convicted could not have been at the scene that day, could not have been at the Audubon Ballroom that day in Washington High School when Malcolm was assassinated. Instead, the documentary points the finger at four members of, of a Nation of Islam mosque in Newark, Jersey, depicting their involvement as an open secret in their city. One even appeared in a 2010 campaign ad for then Newark, New Jersey Mayor Cory Booker, who is now Senator Cory Booker. Okay, now this is this is from February 6, 2020. This article, because I keep everything. I've got thousands, thousands of articles on my. So there was a piece. Now, Carl Evans, um, Carl Evans wrote the book Judas Guy. Carl Evans, so I was reading information because I'm familiar with Carl Evans. I remember interviews that um, um, Tony Brown did back in the, I think it was early 1990s, late 1980s, on Tony Brown's journal with Carl Evans. Carl Evans wrote the book The Judas Guy was one of the premier books dealing with the assassination of Malcolm X, and it's, uh, I think it's in the other room, the Judas Factor, where is that? Okay, I think the Judas Factor is in the other room. Um, this article, February 6, 2020, says not all, not all are convicted of the theory in the documentary. Carl Evans, author of the Judas Factor, Plot to Kill Malcolm X. He's one of the preeminent scholars on Malcolm X, also, by the way, and Malcolm's assassination. Carl Evans cited film footage that he said showed Mr. Aziz, okay, from uh, uh, 
Lil Aziz, uh, shows uh, Mr. Aziz at the Autobahn. Okay, uh, I'm sorry, Muhammad A. Aziz, Muhammad A. Aziz, then known as Norman 3X Butler, Muhammad A. Aziz, then known as Norman 3X Butler. Okay, so in Carl Evans, I read one article where Carl Evans said he was contacted to be in the documentary and he was in, he declined, but he sent footage of Norman 3X Butler, okay, um, Muhammad Aziz, who's now Muhammad Aziz, he sent footage of him in the Audubon Ballroom the day Malcolm X died. This is what Carl Evans did. Okay? I, I, I haven't seen it. Well, hold on. I saw, uh, I, Here's what Carl Evans said. Carl Evans cited footage that he said showed Mr. Aziz at the Audubon Ballroom and dismissed Mr. Muhammad's research uh, as unreliable. Okay. Um, so let's let's do this. We're going to go to. Uh, I want to go to this clip here. I just sent you a clip from NBC News. Uh, Let's go to this clip. You're going to hear also. Uh, this is right after the assassination. This is from 1955. NBC News. Right after the assassination of Malcolm X. And then you're also going to hear Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s reaction as well. Let's go to this clip. How was Malcolm X brought to the hospital? Well, the hospital was called, and uh, we sent a stretcher team over to the Audubon Ballroom, and they brought the body over. The Audubon Ballroom was the hospital? Yes, it's at 166 Broadway, which is right across the street from the hospital. So in other words, the body was moved through the streets. It was carried through the area. What condition was he on arrival? He was dead on arrival, and him into the third floor emergency room and several doctors tried to revive him for about 15 minutes and uh, there was no response. They did all the emergency procedures that you would use in a case like this and there was no response at any time and he was pronounced dead at 3.30. Well, I think we uh, have to agree that uh, this appears to be uh, the result of an internal conflict within the black nationalist movement. So I think the first thing that needs to be done is for a conference of goodwill to take place between uh, black nationalist leaders. This was why I suggested a few days ago that the followers of the late Malcolm X and the followers of Elijah Muhammad uh, should sit down at the peace table together, so to speak, uh, and discuss this problem and try to reach some understanding. Uh, I don't think, uh, and I'm sure, uh, that uh, nothing can be accomplished by violence. Uh, it only leads to new and more complex social problems. I think it is unfortunate uh, for the black nationalist movement. I think it is unfortunate for the health of our nation. Okay, so that was uh, 
that day or the next day or so I have to look at the exact date. Okay, and you heard Dr. King. Now, it's important to note, we're coming up here on the break, it's important to note that uh, Dr. King, February 24, 1966, almost exactly one year after Malcolm's assassination, Dr. King and Coretta Scott King go to Elijah Muhammad's house in Chicago, and Dr. King has a meeting with Elijah Muhammad, okay? At the Nation of Islam website, you have an article there dealing with that, so a lot of people don't know this, right? And then also, also it's important to note that while Malcolm was still in the Nation of Islam in, uh, in the late July 1963, the month before the March on Washington, Malcolm was calling for a unification of the civil rights leaders and their followers. And Malcolm sent a letter to the leading civil rights leaders, Dr. King and the big six civil rights leaders. He sent a letter to them requesting a meeting uh, to attend a, uh, a, a rally in Harlem. That was gonna be in August, I think it was August 1963. And he said, we have to find a common solution to a common problem posed by a common enemy. A common solution to a common problem by a common enemy. Malcolm was calling for unification of the civil rights leaders and their followers. We'll deal with this on the other side of the break. This is the After Issue Network show. I'm Michael Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Kwanzaa is coming, and the KwanzaaShop.com has all of your Kwanzaa needs. Order your Kwanzaa set today, which includes a Kanara, candle, a mat, a cup, the African American flag, and a basket. Visit thequanzashop.com, thequanzashop.com. They have Kanara sets, which include a candle holder, candles, a mat, and a cup. Kwanzaa is December 26th through January the 1st. Add the early bird discount code for 10% off your order placed before November 28th. Visit thequanzashop.com and place your order today. Thequanzashop.com has all of your Kwanzaa needs to celebrate this African-American and African holiday. Thequanzashop.com. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black. All positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30-plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network, subscribe now. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30-plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network. Subscribe now. Network show we do with current events in history and politics.
politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Unfortunately, many people can view what racism is. Racism is a power structure. And the laws and policies that put us in this predicament between these laws and policies can take a doubt. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you control the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do what you truly doesn't know. We have it all for 19 a.m. Superstation. 910, the superstition. Detroit's only African American talk radio. Welcome back to the African American Radio Show right here on the African American Superstation. Okay, uh, call number 313 778 7600. 313 778 7600 is the call in number if you have a question or comment. Um, so, right before the break, we were talking about the, uh, one of the big stories today. assassination of Malcolm X uh, have been exonerated and are going to be um, uh, one who's still in prison is going to be released from prison. Uh, we're talking about uh, Muhammad Aziz and uh, Khalil Islam. Muhammad Aziz on the left and Khalil Islam. Uh, Muhammad Aziz uh, used to be known as Norman 3X Butler and Khalil Islam used to be known as Thomas 15 Johnson, Thomas 15X Johnson, okay, Thomas 15X Johnson. All right, now, if you look at this here quickly, um, for decades, historians have cast doubt on the case against the two men, Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam, who spent more than uh, 20 years in prison. Their exoneration represents a remarkable uh, acknowledgement of the grave errors made in the case of towering importance in the 1965 uh, assassination of uh, Malcolm X. Now, Brian Stevenson, a civil rights uh, attorney and founder of the Justice Initiative, said it's long overdue. He said this is one of the most prominent figures of the 20th century who commanded enormous attention and respect, and, and yet our system failed, and yet our system failed. Okay, now, um, I want to look at this here. This is, uh, what's the date on this? Um, so this is, yeah, that clip that I played from NBC News, uh, that was um, from, right. that was right after Malcolm was assassinated, so that had to be later that day or the next day. So it was in late February 1965. I'm looking here, it doesn't show, um, it doesn't show it. All right. Okay, we're going to go to clip two from from uh, we're going to go to clip two from the Black News Channel here in just a minute, Shakita. So, Brian Stevenson said it's long overdue. He said this is one of the most prominent figures of the twenty of the twentieth century who commanded enormous attention and respect, and yet our system failed. End quote. Now, a twenty-two month investigation. Conducted jointly by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and lawyers for the two men found that prosecutors and two of the nation's premier law enforcement agencies, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, and the New York Police Department, NYPD, had withheld key evidence that had it that had it been turned over would likely have led to the men's acquittal. Okay. 
this 22-month investigation of Cy Vance's office, the Manhattan District Attorney's office, uh, found that uh, it, it found that uh, the FBI and the NYPD uh, withheld evidence that, having been turned over, turned over, would likely have led to the men's acquittal. Okay, so now there was a. We're going to go to this clip here, Black News Channel, here in just a minute. Um, so one of the interesting things here is not just that the DA or the prosecutor or even the FBI would have information, it's that one of the men, uh, born, I believe, uh, Talmadge Hager, also known as uh, uh, Tommy and also known as uh, Mujahid uh, Abdul Halim she said I did it but the government didn't do it and he attempted to direct the government and the public to the people who actually killed Malcolm X who were his accomplices so there was really no room here for confusion about who did what that's correct uh, but in 1978 a judge ruled that Tom Mishaya took too long uh, in the first instance. And the second instance that he didn't have any corroboration for his, uh, for his claims in those affidavits. And, and the, the, the real truth of the matter is and was that there uh, was no um, political will to uh, bring justice to this case. What does it mean to exonerate these men now, men who spent decades in prison, people who literally died without getting justice, without being vindicated? What does it mean now? I get the symbolic gesture of it, uh, but what does it mean as a practical matter to exonerate these men? Well, I, I think it means two things. I mean, on the one hand, um, it, it, it's important for the, uh, the legacy of these two men and what it means to their families to not have to live in of having uh, a relative involved in the assassination of Malcolm X. Uh, that's number one. Uh, but number two, it, it allows us to begin the process to interrogate the government to find out you know, uh, just what was involved here. Why was there such prosecutorial misconduct and why, as we've shown in our series, was there such a desire to protect the man that they knew to be the shot gun assassin, William X. Bradley? That's another important point. And of course, William X. Bradley, uh, part of the newest mosque uh, of the nation of Islam, he was a brother who died right as you were on his heels, as you talked about in, in the series, the series talking about who killed Malcolm X, which is uh, still available on Netflix. It's a powerful, wonderful series that everyone should watch. Um, this is also, to me, and, and this is just my opinion, I, I, I'm curious about yours, uh, an opportunity for the United States government to look as if it has righted a wrong. The U.S. government can say, hey, we are exonerating people, we have found the truth, and we're holding it up. We don't scrutinize it. This will divert our attention from the fact that the United States government was likely involved in the assassination, that it was likely involved in the cover-up, and so they're not finding the truth and clearing 
someone's name, they're still in a position in themselves as the arbiters of right and wrong, and in fact, they are probably the creators of much of this mess. Well, we're, we're, we're waiting to see what they present tomorrow, um, what new evidence they may have found. Um, here's the thing, Mark. We know for a fact that there were nine undercover FBI informants in the Audubon, in Audubon Ballroom February 21st, 1965, the afternoon of Malcolm X was assassinated. We also know that there was an undercover police officer by the name of Gene Roberts who worked for the Bureau of Special Services. Uh, all of these witnesses filed reports and were present and saw what happened, and none of them were, they not only were not called to the stand in the defense, but uh, they weren't even acknowledged to be there and never revealed to, um, you know, either team in the case. This is a sudden development, and there's a lot to unpack here. I promise the Black Nation Act, we're going to continue to cover this. As more information comes out tomorrow and in the subsequent days, we're going to cover this. We're going to also try and talk uh, to everyone who's connected to this, because this is mind-boggling, and this completely uh, shifts the historical narrative. Again, people on the streets, people on the ground have been saying this for decades, but now we have some official corroboration of this, and hopefully that can help us continue to unravel this, this all the confusion, dishonesty, uh, and, and, and state-sponsored violence. Uh, Abdul Rahman Muhammad, thank you so much for joining me as always. My brother will be sure to have you back very, very soon. Everybody, be sure to join the conversation yourselves because we want to hear from you. Head over to our BNC Instagram. Okay, pause it right there. Pause it right there. Pause it right there. Okay, you can stop the clip. Okay, so that was from Black News tonight, uh, Dr. Mark Lamont. November 17, 2021, uh, the impact of exoneration of two Malcolm X convicted killers. We're coming up on a break. We'll deal with, we'll continue this on the other side of the break, and then we'll also talk about day nine and the Michael Bryan murder trial. Travis and Michael, the man who shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery, took the uh, witness stand today, and he started shedding tears on the witness stand all this, okay, so um, I think he's going to be cross-examined tomorrow. Uh, prosecution some tears behind that. Uh, you listen to the African History Network show on Michael and Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Kwanzaa is coming, and the KwanzaaShop.com has all of your Kwanzaa needs. Order your Kwanzaa set today, which includes a Kanara, candle, a mat, a cup, the African-American flag, and a basket. Visit thequazashop.com, thequazashop.com. They have Kanara sets, which include a candle holder, candles, a mat, and a cup. Kwanzaa is December 26th through January the 1st. Add the early bird discount code for 10% off your order placed before November 28th. Visit thequazashop.com and place your order today. Thequazashop.com has all of your Kwanzaa needs to celebrate this African-American and African holiday. Thequazashop.com. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black. 
all positive all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30 plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network, subscribe now. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that'll satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. Start your free trial today. Welcome back to the African History Network show. I'm your host, Brother Michael Hotel. It is Wednesday, November 17, 2020. Live calling numbers 313 778 7600. 313 778 7600 is the calling number of your, your question or comment. So, before the break, we were talking about the shocking news that came out today. Now, I knew the case was going to be open because we, we talked about this here on the show last year, February 2020. We talked about this article. Um, uh, this article here, Who Really Killed Malcolm X, and it was about the documentary. And after the documentary aired, Cy Vance's office, Manhattan District Attorney, said they were reopening the uh, investigation into the assassination of Malcolm X. Okay. Um, so, and I think they may, I think they may have even uh, had started looking at it even before then. But, but read this article here. This is from uh, February 6, 2020, by John Leland. Who really killed Malcolm X? Okay. Uh, all right. Now I want to go back to this one here from the uh, New York Times. We're going to we're going to clip three in just a minute. We're going to clip three, Shaquille, in just a minute from NBC 90 News. Um, go back to this article from New York Times that came out today. Let's go back to this one. Two men convicted uh, in the two men, uh, two men convicted of killing Malcolm X will be exonerated decades later. Now the two men known at the time of the killing is Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15 Johnson X. Thomas 15X2, 15X2, spent decades in prison for uh, the murder, which took place on February 21st, 1965, where three men opened fire inside the crowded Audubon ballroom in Manhattan as Malcolm X was starting to speak. But the case also, but the case against them was questionable from the outset, and in the decades since, historians and amateur investigators uh, have raised doubt about the official story. The review, which was undertaken as an explosive uh, document, the review, which was undertaken as an explosive documentary about the assassination and a new biography renewed 
interest in the case, in the assassination of Malcolm X, did not identify who prosecuted and I believe really killed Malcolm X, okay? Uh, those who were previously implicated but never arrested are dead. Those who were previously implicated but never arrested are dead. Now, in the interview that Roland Marcus did today with Abdul, uh, Abdul Rahman Muhammad, uh, who, uh, who um, uh, was the uh, man who uh, did the uh, documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X, he said, uh, Abdul Rahman Muhammad said today, Roland Martin was filtering, that Cy Vance's office, uh, Manhattan the district attorney, can get, either he can get the documents or did get documents uh, that uh, are uh, unredacted unredacted documents. Well, Abdul Rahman said he got documents that were redacted, documents from the government that were redacted, parts blacked out, names blacked out, but he said Cybans can get those same documents that are unredacted documents, okay? So I think more is to come. We're going to see what happens tomorrow at the press conference. Nor did it uncover, the article goes on to say in the New York Times, nor did it uncover a police or government conspiracy to murder Malcolm X. It also left unanswered questions about how and why the police and the federal government failed to prevent the assassination by at least one member of a New Jersey chapter of the Nation of Islam. Okay? Um, now, the, the man, uh, Mujahid Abdul Halim, who was also found guilty and his, con uh, uh, and his conviction at the trial, he confessed to the murder, okay? He confessed to the murder of Malcolm X, but said and has maintained that the other two men, okay, were innocent, all right? And these are the two men who were being exonerated, Muhammad Aziz, um, and he's 83 years old, and the late Khalil Islam. Okay, now, at his home in Brooklyn on Thursday, Mr. Halim, now uh, uh, 80 years old, uh, okay, Mr. Halim, now 80 years old, Mujahid Abdul Halim, offered a simple response to the news about his co-defendants. He said, God bless you, they're exonerated. Uh, quote, unquote, he said in a quiet voice, God bless you, they're exonerated. Now, the acknowledgement by Cyrus R. Vance, Jr., Manhattan District Attorney, who is among the nation's most prominent local prosecutors, recast one of the most painful uh, moments in modern American history. And at a time when racism and discrimination in the criminal justice system are once again focus of uh, a national uh, focus of a national protest movement. Okay, it reveals a bitter truth. It reveals a bitter truth uh, that two other people convicted of killing Malcolm X, black Muslim men, hastily arrested and tried on shaky evidence. Okay? They were hastily arrested and tried on shaky evidence. They were themselves victims of the very discrimination and injustice that Malcolm X denounced in language that has echoed across the decades. 
Now, in the interview, Cyrus R. Vance, Manhattan District District Attorney, apologized on behalf of law enforcement, which he said had failed the families of the two men. Those failures, he said, could not be remedied. Quote, but what he but 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 what we can do is acknowledge the error, the severity of the error. What we can do is acknowledge the error, the severity of the error, end quote. Also, release whatever documents you have, unredacted documents, and put these let's get the truth out of what happened to uh, Malcolm X. Now uh, uh, Cyrus R. Vance's uh, District Attorney Cyrus R. Vance's reinvestigation conducted with the Innocence Project and the Office of David Shanice, S-H-A-N-I-E-S, a civil rights lawyer, contended with serious obstacles. Many of those involved in the murder case, including witnesses, investigators, and trial lawyers, uh, as well as other potential suspects, died, uh, uh, died years ago, died long ago. Key documents were lost to time and physical evidence, such as murder re- such as murder weapons, were no longer available to be tested. Okay, uh, quote the point, and this points to the truth that law enforcement over history has often failed to live up to its responsibilities. End quote. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus R. Vance said. He went on to say these men did not get the justice that they deserve. End quote. These men did not get the justice that they deserve. Here's a picture of Cyrus R. Vance. Okay, those watching on Facebook and YouTube, keep watching. We're going to keep broadcasting for a few more minutes. Uh, visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can register for the online courses I teach on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Then also understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Right now, it's the Rex Rome behavior is not over till we win. We'll count it forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. All right, stand by. Okay, uh, we're going to go quickly to the story dealing with. We're, we're going to follow. We'll, we'll talk more about this story tomorrow. We'll talk about Julius Jones a little bit tomorrow as well. Um, uh, there's going to be a press conference dealing with. Uh, this new evidence and exoneration of the two men uh, who were convicted in the assassination of Malcolm X. Uh, so we'll talk about that on tomorrow's show. We'll talk more about the, the Michael Bryan murder trial also. Um, okay, I want to go to, uh, let's go do this quickly here. Uh, let's go to what happened in court today. So I, I saw some of the testimony today also, and um, once again, my question is, you know, he, he talked about an instance prior where he used his gun to de-escalate a situation, and then this, if you, as I asked yesterday, if you wanted to de-escalate the situation, why don't you just go in the opposite direction and leave Ahmaud Arbery alone because he was running away from you all. If you wanted to de-escalate the situation, why don't you just leave Ahmad Arbery alone? Okay, uh, I want to go to this clip here. This is from NBC Nightly News. Uh, they dealt with the trial. We're going to cue this up. A 
not on that and WFDF anymore. Uh, we're only on for an hour. Sundays we're on for two hours, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Okay, so while we queue this up, uh, if you like this type of information, also you can support the application network, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, and through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show. This is our official Cash App account. We're here six days a week. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, and keep broadcasting. Friday, uh, I'll be on Roland Martin and Filter. Friday on Roller Market and Filter, so I'll be on this Friday. Okay, these other two, so this is our official Cash App account, dollar sign, the AHN show, SHOW. When you go to it, it says Michael and shows the picture. These other two are fake application network Cash App accounts. Okay, um, So this article here from New York Times, man who fatally shot Ahmaud Arbery describes a quote-unquote life-or-death encounter. Yeah, it was for Ahmaud Arbery. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah it, you're right. It was a life-or-death encounter. It, it was a death. You could, you, could, you could make the argument it was a death-or-death death encounter for Ahmaud Arbery. Day nine in the trial, and uh, Travis McMichael unexpectedly took the witness stand. Instance that that we made contact. I want to give my side of the story. I want to explain what happened. Stunning in the courtroom, Travis McMichael, the man accused of firing the fatal shotgun blast that killed Ahmad Arbery taking the witness stand in his own defense. He grabs the shotgun, and I believe I was struck on that, that, that first instance that, that we made contact. McMichael, the first defense witness, along with his father, Gregory, and neighbor, William Bryant, facing nine counts, including murder, aggravated assault, and false imprisonment. Prosecutors say the three men hunted Arbery down, trapped him with their pickup trucks, and murdered him. Today, McMichael explaining why he opened fire. Three blasts, two wounding Aubrey. I shot him. Why? He, he had my gun. This is a life or death situation. And I'm going to have to, to stop him from doing this, so I shot. Did he stop when you shot He did not. Through the trial, the defense highlighting home security videos that it says show Aubrey at least four times at night in a neighborhood house under construction. And that McMichael had encountered Aubrey near that house 12 days before the fatal encounter. Goes to reach in his pocket or waistband area. Michael insisting he had every reason to suspect Aubrey committed a crime the night in question. That final shot, he disengaged, and at that point, let go. He turned and continued to run down. Uh, down At that point, I was in shock. Prosecutors arguing there's no evidence Arbery had ever stolen anything in the neighborhood, nor that the defendants ever tried to make a citizen's arrest. 
prosecutors say the defendants deliberately and intentionally murdered Arbery. He didn't tell your dad this is a really, really bad idea that could go really wrong for us and we should just stay here and call 911. He didn't say that, did you? Ron Allen joining us now. Ron, what's been the reaction from the family of Arbery to this unexpected testimony today? I, I just spoke to his mother, who says she hopes that all three defendants testify. She wants to hear in their own words what they were thinking that day. She said that based on the testimony today, she thinks the men made all the wrong and worst possible assumptions about her son, and they had no reason to shoot and kill him. Okay, so that was um, the day he went to court, November 17th. All right, now uh, I want to go to... Describes a quote-unquote life or death encounter. Okay, well, it, you could say it was a death or death encounter for um, Ahmad Abdel. Travis McMichael, who had pleaded not guilty to murder charges, took the stand in his own defense on Wednesday. But basically, uh, it's surmised that his defense uh, attorneys realized uh, this ain't going too well for these people who need to get on the witness stand and save their life. Um, because otherwise, in a situation like this, you, you wouldn't hear from. You, you you open yourself up to being tripped up by the prosecutor because you're going to be cross-examined by the prosecution. So if he did not take the witness stand, okay, he wouldn't be cross-examined. But because he took the witness stand, he's opened himself up to being cross-examined. He's opened himself up to being tripped up by the prosecution and he could be in a worse situation okay all right so let's go to this and then also uh i, I got I, i've got the clip now from um the feature wolves show uh, making the case for the black people's challenge he had a good segment tonight on on uh, day nine of the trial okay so let's look at this here uh, Travis McMichael, the man who shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery, who's running for his life, uh, after chasing him for five minutes through a suburban Georgia neighborhood, testifying his own defense on Wednesday, because what choice did he have? Arguing that pointing his gun at Ahmaud Arbery was an attempt to de-escalate the situation. This is what this fool said in court, okay? It was an attempt to de-escalate the situation. You chasing him for five minutes, he's trying to run for his life, you think you're going to de-escalate the situation by pulling a gun. Why don't your ass run in the opposite direction and go back home, have a man-made sandwich, leave him the hell alone. You want to de-escalate something. A tactic he says he learned during use of force training while serving in the U.S. Coast Guard. Yeah, but you were the aggressor here. You would. It would be different if you were just sitting there minding your own business, right? Watching eating man-made sandwiches and watching uh, uh, Andy Griffith and drinking moonshine, whatever the case may be. And then he just, and the man just ran up to you, and you pulled a gun and said, back off. That, that's not what happened. You were chasing him. You were the aggressor. Quote, if you pull a weapon on someone, from what I've learned in my training, usually that tells people to back off. But you're you the one chasing him. Well, my training, if white people chase you, they usually ain't, they, it's usually not going to turn out too well, especially in Georgia. He 
said, quote, if you pull a weapon on someone, from what I've learned in my training, he's talking about training in the coaching realm, usually that tells people to back off. Well, when white men are chasing you with guns and pickup trucks, and you're black, our training tells us to run for our lives. This, this is not good. He said, he testified that they're describing it as, quote, compelled compliance, end quote. Now, Charles McMichael, 35 years old, is among three white defendants facing murder charges in the Mount Auburn death, along with his father, Gregory McMichael, and their neighbor, William Ryan. He testified, he, he stands accused of chasing Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old African-American man, in two trucks through the Satilla Shores neighborhood outside the city of Brunswick, Georgia. When Travis McMichael got out, out of his truck, he and Ahmaud Arbery struggled over Travis McMichael's shotgun. Travis McMichael described the encounter as life or death situation and said he suspected that Ahmaud Arbery was a burglar who was potentially armed. No evidence has been presented that Ahmaud Arbery had a weapon with him, and also no evidence that Ahmaud Arbery stole anything. There were numerous white people who were on surveillance camera of the house in Satilla Drive that's under construction. They walked through the house also. They weren't chased down. They didn't have guns pointed at them. Now, Travis McMichael said that when he ultimately pulled the trigger, Ahmaud Arbery was overpowering him. Quote, I shot uh, again because I was still fighting. Okay, you feel like a five-year-old holding on a hope. You feel like a five-year-old holding on a hope, holding super black man, uh, uh, super black man stereotype again. You chased him for five minutes. Now you feel for, fear for your life and you don't want the gun. Quote, he was all over me. He was still all over that shotgun and he was not relenting. Well, because he thought you were going to kill him. William Ryan uh, reserved his opening statements until after the prosecution rested their case. So instead of giving it at the start of trial, like the other two defendants lawyers representing him and Michael, he made a, a decision to do it after the prosecution. Tried to point uh, point out and separate the actions of his clients from those of his co-defendants. Um, now I've asked whether this was a smart move to save addressing the jurors until after the prosecution presented all of their evidence. But that was before we saw just how damning that evidence was. So I have to ask again: Was this a smart move to hold off on addressing the jurors?
So um, I, I think that the strategy was to separate them, to make it look like it's not as bad as them, but by the same token, I think you get all the bonus points. So, CK, why not ask for a separate trial then? Well, I think, you know, you probably should have asked for a separate trial early on. I do think that you probably made a strategic move because initially they probably thought, one, this kid's never going to get indicted, but two, once they did, once they got captured, that this case would never give us the chance to get convicted. I think that they felt very comfortable and, and very um, entitled, if you will, that gave the community, not anyone in that community, but gave them some of the they strongly for acts of self-defense. I believe that they actually believed that. There's not evidence to support it, not by and large, not, not beyond a reasonable doubt, but they actually believed that and wanted to believe that, and I think the, I think the lawyer for Brian was breaking that play. They just felt, look, it's safe, it's better if they're all here together than some respect to them separating stuff out and just trying it one time. And they may have actually moved to sever the case, and maybe if that motion was denied, I've not heard of any motion to sever, so I'm not certain if they did it, and if so, why it didn't come up. But I've not heard of any motion to sever, but that's what they probably should have done, frankly. All right, so let's get to the first witness that we called, and that was Travis McMichael. Um, not sure if he took cue from Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, but were you surprised that he took the stand?
about the day of the shooting, the defense spent time talking about Travis Michael's background, including his Coast Guard training. Um, let's take a listen to that. similar testimony from Kyle Rittenhouse where he saw pointing a gun at someone would get them to retreat. Will his Coast Guard experience and his handling of weapons, so to speak, help justify his actions in the series? I think it serves purpose, so I think he's got those sword belt. The reason why he's coming in will help is because it sets the stage for him being somewhat of an expert. And that expert depth is independent, but an expert. When he talks about all this training, it's all of that training is which are
understand what happened during that meeting with the laws and policies that were changed. How did you get to where you are with the young people that you work for? And also, you know, Paul King passed the policy of law and read to you. Those that follow you and are familiar with you and learn is part of preparing for that that took place. And what happened after you were in after seeing the laws and policies.
the economy of the country doing. So you download the iTunes, the iHeartRadio app, or you use iTunes and Xbox and Stitcher or whatever you use to listen to audio content or to see shows or to hear things. Alright, so we have to get out of here. We're going to have to end this thing with the con thing. And throughout the time, going around the world, we're going to try to get some shows for you major. Friday I'll be on Roland Martin and Jr. Okay, and uh, it's a big show. Thursday we're running from Friday Legacy until midnight. Eastern Standard Time is Sunday from 9 to 11. Remember, right now if you have Trump's papers, you can come up with Eastern Standard Time whenever the sun is going to shine. Kwanzaa is coming, and the KwanzaaShop.com has all of your Kwanzaa needs. Order your Kwanzaa set today, which includes a Nara, candle, a mat, a cup, an African-American flag, and a basket. Visit thequanzashop.com, thequanzashop.com. They have Kanara sets, which include candle holders, candles, a mat, and a cup. Kwanzaa is December 26th through January 1st. Add the early bird discount code to 10% off your order placed before November 28th. Visit thequanzashop.com and place your order today. Thequanzashop.com has all of your Kwanzaa needs to celebrate this African-American Pan-African holiday. Thequanzashop.com.